2: Today we have a special treat, Uh, we're going to talk about intelligence and the ways in which US intelligence agencies uh, collect information on China and Russia in particular, and the ways in which we should think about the role of intelligence in policymaking in the United States. This is a topic that's often discussed in the news media, but a topic for which we're given very little background and often um, issues are misconstrued and politicized before they're explained. So, we're fortunate today to have with us uh, an old friend who was on our podcast, I think, a couple of years ago. He's back with us today. Uh, This is John Cypher. John retired in 2014 after a 28-year career in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. At the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides the activities of the agency globally. John served in multiple tours uh, overseas for the C- Central Intelligence Agency. He was chief of station and deputy chief of station in numerous locations in Europe and Asia and various high-threat environments. Uh, and he lived to tell the tale, John. <laughs> John also served, and this is really interesting to me, as lead instructor in the CIA's uh, clandestine training school. And he was a regular member of various discussions and training activities beyond that. Uh, he now spends quite a lot of time talking to students and commenting on uh, intelligence matters. Uh, so uh, we should call you Professor John now, oh, shouldn't geez. we?
1: <laughs> My dad was a Professor right? I still haven't got my PhD. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you have
2: the PhD of experience, John. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to our podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thanks. Great to see you again.
2: Before we talk to John Seifer, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem
0: today? Conceiving the Spy's Lament. Wow. Wow. Uh, Let's conceive of that lament. Go ahead. It must be so boring with your crystal ball, seeing each bomb, knowing where it will fall, but not being able to do a thing. And most of the time, the thing is to stay quiet and find explanations for the inexplicable, the pinings of men in smoke-filled rooms far in the distance or else centuries before you were there to say, no, this is not the end of the world. No, this is not the end of the world, and I am sure if you moved your satellite just to the left, you would see that they are still eating at diners and forgetting to vote and holding up mirrors to the sun to see if the earth will alight. And I am sure when you alight in a field with a parachute, you are amazed most of all that nobody cares. Nobody cares that it is known to man what the innards look like when the man is gone and all that is left is flesh, or that the moral universe has been found to be alive and fleshy and bending over backwards to show each of us the door at the wrong time. No, this is not the end of the world. The world flows on towards us like a river, long after we have forgotten what cold truth the water is.
2: What's your poem about, Zachary?
0: My poem is is sort of, it's trying to, to understand what it's like to be on the other side, because I think we, as as ordinary citizens, we think that our world is determined by these forces that we can't see, these sort of mysterious forces of espionage and spycraft, etc. Um, but I'm trying to, in this poem, question what it's like to be in that liminal space uh, where you are one of those people, and and maybe to question or, or to try and explain how little or or, or how small um, one can seem in that position mm. uh, of of trying to control so so many of these forces that even for for you on that in that space in that unique space are also out of control mm. and and hard to to define.
1: Mm. It has been a, it's been a real danger, especially in the last I don't know five six years. Is because the world that intelligence officers work in is a secret world, it is very easy for people to put their prejudices and their beliefs and a lot and their conspiracies into that space, because it you know intelligence professionals tend not to respond and provide information. and And so we've seen it. so it has been a handy tool to attack. Our public servants and our institutions and stuff from polit- from political sides in the last few years, and, and I worry a little bit as someone who was in that space. First of all, we are ordinary <laughs> ordinary right. people. The information we deal with is, is not always you know unbelievable and crazy, and there's mm-hmm. not this these things going on. We're just trying to deal with the world with with a little bit, with a, a few extra sources of information than the average citizen, um, and then provide the best. Not even advice. The best information, and intelligence we can to policymakers so they can make make policy. So you know, so much is heaped on the intelligence community because it's secret, and I, I worry that at a certain point we we lose the citizenry because they think there's more there or there's less there than there really is. And I think when General Hayden was the director of CIA, you know, he made it clear that people like me and others, when we retire, we have an obligation to try to do what we can to explain. The intelligence community to the public, because you know we we operate in the public's name, and they do have a right to understand the basic. They don't have a right to understand the secrets and sources and methods we necessarily use, but they do have a right to understand the process and how it works.
2: What's the most important thing that citizens should know that you find they don't know about what people in your line of work do?
1: That's a hard question. Um. You know it, again, there's the conspiracies. and then there's the sort of Hollywood part of it too. And James uh, Bond. <laughs> and I think you know, in a certain sense, it is a large bureaucracy. And it's also um intelligence is really a value add to the to public policymaking, right? And so uh, you know, Western intelligence services, what they're they're involved in doing is collecting intelligence and per, via a number of means via human sources, spies, if you will. Satellites, uh, diplomats, military attaches overseas, experts like yourself that travel around, you know, open source information, and now increasingly big data and open source, and trying to put that together with a professional analytic cadre to provide policymakers with the best information they can to make policy. But as you know, policy is made on so many things. It's made on sort of personal quirks or political, you know partisan views or you know intelligence is one piece of that so the intelligence community is is providing that information as best they can and it's often incomplete but it's sort of the best they can do and then that along with everything else is put together to make policy so policy making is a sort of a difficult and complex process and the intelligence part of that is sort of the the value add to try to provide a little bit of extra information to help policymakers
2: most recently uh, we we've had a series of controversies around intelligence. Uh, One of the more interesting ones to me is the one surrounding the war in Ukraine, right? For the first time that I can remember, our intelligence agencies now under the direction of Bill, Bill Burns, um, not only collected evidence of a planned invasion of Ukraine, which, of course, did occur, uh, but then shared a lot of that information. And, and first of all, is that un- as unusual as it seemed? And what are your what's your assessment of how well the intelligence agencies did?
1: Well, again, the intelligence community works on behalf of the executive, on behac- behalf of the president. In fact, it's funny when people talk about intelligence, oftentimes they say, you know, the CIA this, the CIA in- interrogation program, the CIA... Frankly, you know, no one says the Department of Defense invasion of Iraq, right? We're we are part of the executive branch. Everything that the intelligence community has done is done on behalf of the president and the executive branch. You know, working with with uh, congressional oversight, um, it was unusual, but I also don't think it's a it's a surprise nowadays. There is such a ability now to use, like I mentioned, big data and these other other means of getting open source intelligence and understanding things in a better way, so that. Perhaps, perhaps the intelligence community, Bill Burns at CIA or, or NSA or somewhere else, collected a, a bit of secret information from a source, from a spy, from satellite, something. And they, they had this information and they knew. The White House said, hey, we would love to be able to use this to try to bring together a coalition to try to deter Putin from taking advantage. Now what they can do is nowadays, if you have a piece of information you know to be true or believe to be true, you can use other means to go out, find this through open source intelligence so that you're not jeopardizing a source necessarily. Right. You can say, okay, we've lo- we now know where to look, and by by knowing where to look, we we're able to put together information so we can then use this publicly. So I think you'll probably see more of that. But mm. um, I think, again, it's on behalf of the administration said, hey, we are trying to stop this war we need to use that intelligence, help us find a way to do it.
2: Right, right. And of course, I mean, this is a case where it appears the intelligence was accurate and predictive of, mm-hmm. of what happened. What about the Ukrainian side? Did, did our intelligence agencies underestimate the resistance of the Ukrainians?
1: It, it does seem that. I think everybody, certainly Putin and the Russians, who have been spying in Ukraine for years and years and believe they know it better than anyone else, underestimated. I do think the West in general underestimated the, the ability to fight and it's not just ukraine look at look at uh, afghanistan i right. think you know we spent years there training providing money information to afghanistan thinking they could hold themselves and fight and in in how you know is there intelligence that understands a people's willingness to fight mm. it's 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 one thing to know they have the capability they've been trained you know the th- things they say another is when push comes to shove will they fight? And I suspect that, you know, a lot of us got that wrong.
0: You've referenced uh, the Western intelligence agencies. I guess my question for you is, what role does the CIA, but but intelligence collection in general, play in, in those alliances? It seems to me that, uh, that espionage or, or intelligence gathering plays a big role in the sort of day-to-day cooperation between allies, particularly within NATO, which is, of course, very relevant in the case of Ukraine.
1: I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's one thing when you mentioned, Jeremy, that what does the public not probably understand about intelligence? So at least I work for the clandestine service. That's the human. That's the the running of human spies, and it's just one small piece of a larger community. You know, again, satellites and diplomats and everything that that goes together to make to make that. Um, but w- one of the things that that um, we do, the probably the most important thing we do, is that cooperation with people around the world, and so. From the clandestine service, I'm just making up this number. Say we we put out, you know, 500,000 pieces of intelligence a year from, from the clandestine service, the supply side of the agency. 75 percent, 80 percent of that comes from liaison partners we work with. So when I worked overseas, if I was in Pakistan, Indonesia, Moscow, we actually would meet with our local the local service people there who understand that their challenges, what they're doing, and we'll work with the CIA on. Areas of, that are of interest and that are compatible. So even in places like Russia, you know, where we really don't like each other, <laughs> our security people will go over to talk to their security people on issues like terrorism and things. Where, you know, if we have, in fact, it's it's by law, if we have information that uh, on a threat to a foreign leader or a, for, a foreigner, we have to share that. So there's times in the past with Saddam Hussein in Iraq where we would show up at his office and say. There's this effort, there's this plan to to kill you here. And he'd be like, w- what are you bringing this to me for? You guys want to kill me. We're like, well, that may be true, but we have this information. We don't want those guys yeah, to kill you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <whatever>. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, d- that aside from the joking part, incredible amount of working. with. And there's a lot of governments around the world that want to work closely with American intelligence without making that public necessarily. So there's countries that are, you know, on the periphery of China that don't want to antagonize the Chinese but they have information they want to share with the Americans because we have interests together. So a good portion of the information that we collect from the clandestine service is through those liaison and friendly contacts.
2: Is the intelligence collection in China and about China is that fundamentally different from what
1: we do in other places? I think China and Russia and places like that are different from—and again, I'm talking about the clandestine service, that the, the human spy side of this. That's the, that's the kind of work that, that I did. Um, countries that began— um, What's the best way? You know, sort of from revolutionary roots. So the, the 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 Russian leaders of the Bolshevik Revolution, Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky, these people were career revolutionaries. They operated underground as terrorists, trying to destroy the czarist regime. And the same with Mao's China. The people who became the leaders of those countries were professional underground revolutionaries. So when they took over, the first thing they did is create really robust intelligence security services, almost. And they almost openly said, you know, we are, you know, we're a terrorist organization. It, Their goal in those kind of countries that grew from those revolutionary roots, their security services and the way they look at uh, national security is regime security. Mm. So their national security is all about protecting the leadership and keeping them in power. And so... The domestic side of what they do is as important to them as anything. And you can imagine if you look at Russia or China today, they put incredible resources to making sure that leadership stays in power. They're af- in other words, they're afraid of their own people. They don't have systems like ours, as ugly as our system can be, that create um, that sort of sense of legitimacy so that they need to stay in power by, you know, destroying opposition, you know, keeping people awake, killing off threats to the regime inside, as well as fighting off foreign foes. And so places like China and Russia invest an incredible amount in stopping anybody that they think is is a threat to the regime, both domestically and overseas. And so in a place like Moscow and Russia, they put incredible resources. If you're an American diplomat in Moscow or in China for that reason, they are going to spend as much money and time as they they need to stop you. They're going to have... Audio and video in your house—they're going compromise, to track you,
2: as they call it. Right.
1: Well, they'll try to—they'll try to compromise you. They'll—they will interview everybody you talk to. They will try to put people up against you to give you false information or to control what you're up to. I mean, I lived in Moscow, and, and it's not hyperbole to say that I had audio and video surveillance inside my house in every room, to include the bathroom. The entire time I was there and every time I walked out of their house, whether it be two in the morning, five in the morning, the next day, I had surveillance people who followed me everywhere I go, dogs that came behind in places where where I turned a corner and they didn't see me do that, interview everybody I talked to. It's all about trying to protect the regime. And so they put incredible resources to do that, which for someone who's trying to collect intelligence, that makes it much more difficult, much harder to do. Whereas if we're trying to find a spy in you know, in Tunisia or something to help us understand what's happening. Um, you probably could meet someone. You could go to have coffee with them. You could develop a relationship, see what, what motivates mo- motivates them. What do they know about their government they might be willing to share with an American diplomat or intelligence officer. That doesn't happen in a place like Moscow in, in, in China. So the way that we collect information is much more difficult there and, and, and harder to collect. And it's it, that's what they want.
2: So how do we do it then? Because it sounds like most of the things that would make sense to me are are going to be uh, foreboding. They're going to be hard to do in that situation, right?
1: Right. So we have the regular sort of tr- efforts to collect via technical means, whether it be right. satellites, all those type of things. You know, visitors to those countries oftentimes they don't have, we don't have the same sort of ability to get in and know people like we do in more open countries and that type of thing. So you know, just for what the clandestine service does is oftentimes we have to recruit people in other places. So when you see a place like the CIA is involved in countries around the world, you think, you know, like back before the when the Shah was in Iran, people were like, oh, you know, the CIA failed because they didn't know what the Iranians were up to. Well, the CIA station there was not involved actually in collecting on Iran. It was considered not of importance to the White House at the time, but the officers there are trying to recruit Russians and Chinese and others. And so a CIA officer in in Paris is looking to find Russians, Chinese, Iranians, people who might be—North Koreans might be a potential uh, security threat to the United States—develop relationships with them there so that they understand what makes them tick, what kind of access they have, what information they might have that benefits the United States that we can't get any other way, and prepare them when they go back to those places and then find a way to either— trick the local services so that we can meet them occasionally in person or find a technical means where they can get information out. But so it just makes it much more difficult. So um, our knowledge of those places is, is is harder to come by. And if you look at American foreign policy sort of disasters over the years, they're often in places where we haven't had lots of Americans or American diplomats or embassies or because you just have to have that knowledge of sort of the culture and the place Mm -hmm. so that when you get pieces of information, they can fit into a larger puzzle. But if we don't, like in North Korea, if we don't have people there, you know, somebody may come out and give us a piece of information and we may over... Emphasize it or something. We saw this with the Iraq War, right? right. You know, for right. example. Right. For
2: assessing someone like Xi Jinping, I know the agency is often called on to be part of a national intelligence estimate and various other documents that are prepared for policymakers, offering sometimes psychological analyses. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the best sources you have found that you can talk about with mm-hmm. us for those sorts of uh, products?
1: Well, frankly, the, the um, American policymakers have to work with their intelligence counterparts. You know, so. Back in the day, when Henry Kissinger would be meeting the Chinese or whatever, in talking to those people and sharing drinks and, and relationships, is after those meetings we would have to sit down with the intelligence community and explain, okay, here's what here's what's happening, here's what he said, here's what others are saying, so that we can sort of mesh that and put that together. And then we have all kinds of things from psychologists watching the videos to see, you know, if we think they're healthy and and so you know if you're looking from afar and you don't have regular access to those kind of people. You do everything you can, but it's, you know, again, it's not going to be the same where you have sort of regular access to people in countries that are of less, less invested in protecting themselves and keeping out foreigners from understanding what's going on.
0: You mentioned uh, earlier the role of presidential oversight in in the work that you do and the work that your colleagues uh, do. Um, I guess my question is, and I think this is something that's definitely been in the news of late. What is the role that that Congress can play in that? Uh, that that the the legislature, which in this case is uh, at least partially opposed to the president, what what role do they play in the work that you do? The sort of politics of it.
1: Yeah. So so the CIA and, and the intelligence community is part of the executive branch, so they respond. To presidential directives right. and take action based on on them. And really, it wasn't until sort of the 70s when the reform of the intelligence community came along that that formalized congressional oversight. So mm-hmm. prior to that, there was a few key people in the Senate and Congress that would would be informed of the things the intelligence community was up to. And when you look at the sort of foibles and problems of intelligence over the years, are often from those early years after World War II when we had such fear of the Russians and invasion of the West that we thought we had to play ugly like the Russians did, the Soviets did at the time. And the CIA got involved in all kinds of things that presidents wanted them to, but there wasn't really a congressional oversight piece to that. In the 70s, the reform of the intelligence community created a number of things. It said if the president wants the intelligence community to take action, what they call covert action, as opposed to collecting intelligence, what I've been talking about earlier is collecting information, collecting intelligence for analysts to look at. Our intelligence community also has the ability to take action, and you've seen over the years maybe fighting al-Qaeda, you know, back in the old days, you know, overthrowing governments and that type of stuff. In the 70s, they reformed it so that if a president wanted the intelligence community to take that kind of action, there had to be formal written – it's called a finding – from the president that has provided the intelligence community saying specifically you're being ordered, being asked to do A, B, and C. That is then shared with the oversight community so that they are aware of what the executive is asking. And then they are involved in in investigating, asking questions, making sure that the intelligence community is keeping the the, the intelligence um, oversight committees, HIPSE, which is the House Committee, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and SISI, the Senate Committee on Intelligence, informed and in sort of, if you're in, a, if you're a senior officer in the intelligence community, you're going to spend a lot of time briefing Congress. When you're doing it, it's a pain in the neck. You're, <laughs> it seems like it's taking away from what you're trying to do, and you keep you busy, but it's a key part of the process. And I think you can you can look at how our intelligence community operated, you know, sort of pre nineteen seventies and the reforms and post. And I think it's it's a very different a different way of doing it. But it, but again, if presidents ask the intelligence community to take action. The intelligence community may explain, like, hey, that may not work, or we don't have the ability or the access to do the things that you're hoping we can do. Presidents we've seen in the past will often try to use the intelligence community because it's easier than than getting public support for what sure, they want to do. Sure. sure. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And and I can imagine like and I just know some people who involved in a thing. When we when when Syria came up you know, there was a lot of, hey, we want the agency or the intelligence community to pl- to do, play this role in Syria and do A, B, and C. And th- before that finding is put out, we go back and say, well, sir, these are the things that we realistically can do. These are the things that, you know, actually don't, you know, you may f- false, falsely assume that we have this capability or here's the potential real downsides of the things that you're asking for. That sort of back and forth happens. And then this... F- a formal finding takes place, which is then shared with Congress. So Congress plays a real key role in that process. And it's difficult, you know, when Congress is so divided and publicly wants to attack the administration, you know, the opposite party wants to attack the administration. Um, But a lot of that fighting goes on in the public, you know, for their own partisan political reasons. And, you know, the intelligence community still has to move forward with the things that the administration asked for.
2: How does the intelligence community navigate uh, working with political oversight, whether it's a president or members of Congress? Uh, I understand that sometime in the next uh, few days, the intelligence agencies will, will give a briefing to, I guess, the gang of eight, eight members of Congress who are often briefed in on what happened with the balloon satellite or the balloon that the Chinese sent over the United States to try to collect information. The Chinese claim it was a weather device. It's yeah. pretty clear it wasn't <laughs> a weather device. Um, it seems like actually a pretty primitive intelligence device, but we'll find out. Um, but how, do, how do members of the agency, those in the roles you, you mm-hmm. occupied, how do they navigate that? Because often you must you must be concerned that the information you're revealing can be misused by the political actors, but yet you work for them, right? right. So, so how do you Manage that.
1: I, you manage it by telling them what they need to know and answering their questions. I think, you know, there in the past there was this sort of view that the things we were doing is too important, and certain members of Congress don't need to know this. Um, but as far as I know, people who deal with Congress now, and from my time, you try to answer their questions honestly. And there is there always is that fear that it could be leaked or it could be used in a, you know against us, but. You know, that happens surprisingly less than you might think. When you see the political heat and the attacks against the administration, oftentimes those people often have more information, uh, you know, than than you'd think. And, and you, you know, there is sometimes leaking. There are sometimes downsides to sharing information with those con- congressional committees. But in general, it works. It's been tougher in recent years because the House committee has gotten almost dysfunctional, really mm-hmm. partisan, whereas the Senate side has continued to be pretty— Work the Republicans and Democrats tend to work together and take their responsibility more seriously. But the intelligence committee keeps them informed, and I've also seen you'll be surprised, Jeremy, that sometimes you know the people that we brief are incredibly supportive or they understand, and then they go out and go to the cameras and say just the absolute opposite.
2: <laughs> I'm shocked, <Yeah. laughs> shocked, shocked by that. I, I want to close on uh, the kind of question we close with every week, sort of looking forward, John. Um, as As we think about the many challenges in the world today, and we haven't talked about many, then we didn't talk about the Middle East and we haven't talked about climate change and uh, some of the non-traditional challenges as well, w- what do we need as a democracy to strengthen our intelligence agencies, but at the same time to protect the kinds of democratic accountability? What would you like to see us do if you could have a wish list wow. in the next few years?
1: Well, I think. That's a good question. Um, There's a few things that that I'm a little bit troubled by. Like after 9-11, there was an incredible amount of funding and money put into the intelligence community to fight terrorism. And and I worry that that massive amount of funding has never been sort of—now that we we have had real success against al-Qaeda and ISIS and a lot of these terrorist groups, we should look back and say, do we still need that amount of money, that amount of funding So much of it seems tied to the the, uh, Pentagon budget, which continues to go up and up and up. And so the intelligence community budget goes up and up. And so I think the intelligence community needs to to take some time and really look at what is it we think we need going forward. You know, it's very easy to say, okay, we don't need to do as much stuff as we are doing on the terrorism front. We need to focus on bigger state actors like China and Russia and, and, you know, move back to sort of traditional, you know, understanding when a war might come and preparing for those kind of things. But what does that take, especially in this age of sort of ubiquitous surveillance? It used to be I could have a fake passport and travel somewhere, wander around for a little bit to make sure I wasn't under surveillance and maybe meet somebody. Nowadays, there's cameras right. everywhere. Right. There's right. all of these sort of things that make that harder. There's just massive data collect from our phones, all these kind of things, Provide you know, having that ability to use sort of cover to, to protect your operations. Um the, the amount of collection that could be used against someone trying to meet a spy. Because it's our obligation as someone, again, I'm talking about the clandestine service. If I have a source who's providing me the keys of what's happening in the Kremlin, it's the CIA and the U.S. government and my responsibility to keep that person alive, to keep them safe. Right, right. It's you know I can't say, hey, this information is really important, but uh, you're not important, and and then run. Well, we can't run a serious intelligence service like that. So I do think it's really time for the intelligence community to really— sit back and look forward and try to say are we are we set up the way we need to be for the threats that we think we're going to be facing in, in years going forward and I think that's going to include a lot more but like this open source mm-hmm. you can some people talk about the open source revolution I think it's, it's true there's an incredible amount of information out there with high capacity um, computer, Um, generation to sort of make connections and collect information and use that information that we haven't had in the past. And how do we, how do you marry that with the secret part of Mm -hmm. the stuff? Because, you know, secrets are only about protecting sources, Um, but intelligence doesn't need to necessarily be secret. It needs to be information that a policymaker needs to make their, to make
2: better policy. Right, right. So, so Zachary, listening to all of this and learning as, as we all are from John's wisdom and experience Um, What what do you think going forward? I mean, I think there's a tendency, especially uh, among those of us who look at the intelligence agencies from the outside in, to either adopt the sort of glorified view of the intelligence agents as superheroes or the opposite, right, as villains. Uh, And we can all come up with some examples where you can sort of slice in what looks like one of the two. But of course, the reality is somewhere in between. What are your thoughts on that? How do you perceive this?
0: Well, I think that the conversation we just have is it, it, we just had is, is is very informative because I think that that we often forget exactly where we started this conversation, which is uh, that the intelligence communities are there to help make policy, and that oftentimes the failures of American foreign policy, as, as as much as we would like to blame them on, on intelligence services or on the failures of of, of individuals in the government, are, are a failure of our policy, a failure of, of, of policy creativity, and oftentimes a failure of our politics. And so I think, I and I hope that this conversation will encourage our listeners to get more involved in those important policy discussions, because I think that this shows how much of an impact they can really have and how important and central that policymaking effort is even to the covert activities and intelligence gathering that we may never hear the details of. Right,
2: right. I think that's very well said. I that's think
1: speedbacks on point.
2: <laughs> and I think it echoes what John has said, it echoes your poem. I mean, what I'm hearing you say, John, more than anything else, is that we have to be humble. We have to recognize that, you know, as as, met, as many capabilities as we have, we're still very limited in how we assess foreign leaders and the opportunities we have in some of the most difficult places to operate. And that means our policymakers have to sometimes reduce their ambitions. Yeah. But it also means we we can't um, expect to get instant uh, results in many cases.
1: We need to elect serious people because it's the they're the people who are telling the intelligence committee what they need to do. Yes, we need to be humble. The world is incredibly complex. The U.S., you know, we have this view that, you know, if something is bad, the U.S. should take an action and fix that. But there's just so many moving pieces out there in these, especially in foreign cultures that we only understand, you know, partially. You know, we have to be more humble about sort of the actions we take and understand is it really in our interest or not. And this point that you make about, yeah, our job is to provide information to policymakers, One thing is I say that as a contrast to places like China and Russia because, yes, they also engage in espionage. They try to collect information. They try to use it. But they also have this much larger remit, again, about keeping the leadership in power, which might mean using subversion and sabotage and disinformation and all these kind of psychological, um, you know, even assassination and all these kind of things against to keep their leadership in power. So – There is a fundamental difference between security services sort of in the West and security services in places like that and sort of battling them is something we've been seeing in our public space for the last few years.
2: And nothing in what you say, John, excuses our own abuses. It's simply to say that we have a different mission for our intelligence services uh, than others. One of the things I I really respect about you, John, is you've been very open uh, when necessary. In the criticism of your own agency of uh, for, for misdeeds in Iraq uh, and elsewhere, yeah. something we talked about when you were on the podcast a few years ago. I, I hope our listeners will, will take this as an entry point to thinking more and reading more about the reality of intelligence uh, and getting beyond the myths. <laughs> uh, our democracy really depends, as John said so well, on having an informed citizenry and informed leaders. Thank you so much for joining us this week, My pleasure. It's always great seeing you, too. And thank you for your poem, as always, Zachary. Thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy.
0: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio.
1: And the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week.
0: You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and
1: Stitcher. See you next time.